really exciting things of God doing miracles. Aren't you, aren't you excited when you read Scripture and you read some of the miracles that God did? Um, I was in a Bible conference a number of years ago. There was a fellow by the name of Sam Gipp that was preaching. And um, he made a statement I'd never really given a lot of thought of. I was, I was raised in, in, in a, a pastor's home. So uh, I've, heard, I've heard the Bible being preached since nine months before I was born. Uh, my dad piped in the, the services into the nursery. And uh, my mom, my mom uh, sat there in every service that I know of. And even in the, in, when I was still in her womb, I was hearing the, the Bible preached and taught. And I don't, I don't ever remember a time that I didn't know the story of David and Goliath. Or I don't ever remember a time that I didn't know the story of the, the three Hebrew boys and, the, and the Samson and Gideon. And it just seems that at a very young age, I, I knew all of those stories. And I'll say this, that I, it, it's been probably maybe 15 years, 18 years or so since... I went to that conference and heard Brother Gibbs say this. And uh, he made the statement. He said, when we come to Scripture, we need to read it as if it's the very first time we're ever hearing it. And I, it, it just dawned on me. And I, I know it's a, 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 one of those thoughts that you think, well, sure, that's the way we always ought to look at it. But uh, I, I had lost at that point in my life the wonder of Scripture. Oh, my when you begin to see how God does some amazing things, I mean, just miraculous things. And, uh, you know, we, we almost read them and, and kind of gloss over them and move quickly on to the next thing because we've heard the story before. We already know how it ends. But when we start thinking of the kind of God that it took to be able to accomplish those things, it helps us to realize the kind of God that we have as our Savior. The one that, though, I, I don't know why in the world, I, I really don't, I've said it so many times, I don't know why in the world God would have bothered with us. After He created us and Adam and Eve fell from the garden, He could have so easily just said, that's it, we'll just wipe the slate clean and start over. But He didn't. He loved us and He, he came up with a redemption plan and, and he, he, he tolerates the, the human race so much. I mean, there's, there's not any a better example of a long-suffering uh, person or God than the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, why He tolerates, why He continues to put up with, and yet He uh, was not only willing to put up with us, He was willing to sacrifice for us. And uh, so I hope as we get into some of these, I mean, we've already read about the plagues and some of these things, how God just kind of targeted all the gods of Egypt and kind of laid them flat and showed that there was no power that they had that was uh, of any consequence over Him and how that He was in charge of all of these things. And, uh, boy, we get into some of these miracles that God begins to do for the nation of Israel. And uh, I hope we get excited reading about them. I do. I hope we come to them with, with eyes wide open, with that... Uh, innocent expression of, wow, you know, this is the God that I serve, the God that I have. And I hope it will be fresh, and I hope it will be new to us. We get to chapter number 13. The, the nation of Israel is just getting ready to leave. God's given them the uh, plan for the Passover, and we found in chapter 12 that that was accomplished. In chapter 13, he kind of establishes it now, and he gives instruction to Moses that this is to be something that is to be uh, continually remembered year after year. And he establishes it now. He gives some guidelines and some rules about practicing it long term uh, for the purpose of remembrance. 
And so we're going to begin in verse number 1. The Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn whatsoever openeth the wound among the children of Israel, both, man of, both of man and of beast. It is mine. Well, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? He tells the nation of Israel that they're to sanctify and to set apart. And we talked a little bit about this last week, about setting ourselves not only apart from the world, but to God that uh, we, we are uh, set aside for a specific purpose. In the New Testament, the Bible talks about being a vessel of honor. And the idea that there's a vessel that is intended for a specific purpose, and it is set apart from dishonorable things and set apart only for honorable things. And the idea that in our Christian life, when we get saved, we ought to be sanctified. That's a big word that we don't use a whole lot anymore. But the truth is, we need to be sanctified to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we, live in a, we live in a day where a lot of churches are not preaching the, the uh, topic of sanctification anymore. The idea that there is, there is a difference. There, there ought to be a difference in a Christian's life from the things of this world, uh, from the old way that we used to live. Uh, in the New Testament, it talks about those that walk as children of disobedience and some of the things that are, are attributed to that group. And he says, and such were some of you. In other words, there was a time where we walked in the flesh. There was a time where we walked after the things of the world. But when we got saved, we had something that happened inside of us. We became a living and a new creature. This spirit that was made alive inside of us, the Holy Spirit of God, came to indwell us. And now we no longer walk after the things of the flesh and under the, the um, power of sin and death. But we now walk in light. We now walk in after the Spirit. And uh, so there's a sanctification that takes place here. There ought to be a separation from the world. And by the way, there needs to be a lot more preaching and a lot more teaching uh, on separation from the world. Uh, it's amazing to me in the day that we live how much the church tries to gravitate to the things of this world. They try to uh, uh, coddle them and make them uh, something that they justify and say, well, that's not too bad and we're still away from the world a ways, but uh, it, you, know, you, can't be too, you can't be too stern, you can't be too strong, you can't have too high a standards. You know, if you do that, people will be repelled by it. But can I tell you this? My measurement of, of, my, of my standards, my measurement of my separation is not based on the rule of how far I am from the world. That, that's the wrong direction to look. If what I'm saying is I'm, I'm away from the world, I'm separated from the world, I'm sanctified from these things, and I say, and the way that I know that is because I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a certain distance from the world. Now, I'm not going to go too far, because if I go too far, then the world might be offended. Then I'm using the world as my standard, and it ought not to be. Our standard ought to be a holy God. We ought to sanctify ourselves unto Him. And so there is, no, there is no length to which our separation ought to be, except to a holy God. And then we ought to separate ourselves unto God. Say, so not only am I going to keep myself from, myself from the world, but I'm going to give myself wholly and fully to God. And by the way, uh, we've said it so many times before, and, and if, if we would ever learn this truth and start living it uh, 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 quite a bit, uh, there wouldn't be a problem with living a victorious Christian life. Because the secret, literally the secret to the Christian life is one thing, and that is this. The choice between my will or God's will. And that's really what it boils down to. Every, every day that we wake up, every time that we have to make a decision, we're saying, okay, I'm either going to have my will in the matter 
or I'm going to follow God's will in the matter. And that is the secret of a victorious Christian life all in one simple but very difficult to follow decision. It's that simple. And so God tells the nation of Israel that they are to be sanctified to the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice he says this, I want you to sanctify unto me all of the firstborn. There's uh, something interesting in the Old Testament about the firstborn. They were the ones that got the blessing. They were the ones that uh, got the birthright. They were considered to be the heir. They were considered to be, when the patriarch of the family passed off the scene, they were to be the ones that would inherit this, the position of spiritual leader of the home. Uh, the firstborn was always considered to be uh, of higher honor. The firstborn was always considered to be uh, the very best. And God was saying on that firstborn, I want you to sanctify them. They're special. There's something unique about them. And he says in verse number one, uh, verse number two, Sanctify them unto me all the firstborn whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. Now, why, why the firstborn? Why the firstborn? Well, let's look back, if you will, for just a moment to, uh, uh, let's go back to uh, Exodus chapter number 4. Exodus chapter number 4. And let's see if I get the right, uh, yes, here we go, verse number 22. Exodus chapter number 4, verse number 22. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my what? My firstborn. So again, there, God is, is saying, okay, in chapter 13, He's saying, we're going to establish this as an annual thing that is to be done by way of remembrance. And you're to practice it throughout the rest of your lifetime, but you're also to pass it on to your children and to your children's children and to your children's children's children and so on. And they were to pass this thing down. And the significance that God puts on the firstborn is to help to signify and to remind the children of Israel that they were His and they were His firstborn. That they were the ones that uh, were to be sanctified unto God as a people. As we get down to verse number 3, the Bible says, And Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which ye came out from Egypt out of the house of bondage. For by strength of the hand of the Lord, and by the way, we read that a couple of different times, didn't we, as we've gotten to this point, that one of the reasons God hardened Pharaoh's heart was so that he could show the nation of Israel, he could show the Egyptians, he could show Pharaoh, and ultimately he could show the whole world that he was the one true God. So he said, I want to deliver the nation of Israel so that there's no doubt, nobody questions that they were delivered by the strength of my hand. And by the way, God sometimes answers our prayers in ways that we would not think were really the way that it ought to be answered. And He does so for no other reason sometimes than that all the world can know that it was done by the strength of His hand. Have you ever had something happen that you've been praying for and it didn't seem to work out the way you wanted it to, but the results were such that all you could do was say, God did it? You did, there, there, was no, there was no impeaching the witness on it there was no uh, uh, looking at the, uh, the evidence and saying, well, this is fake news. <laughs> there was no disputing it. This wasn't an election that ballots were cast and then everybody questioned it. There, there wasn't news sources saying, this is God's doing something in such a way that it is an irrefutable fact that He did it by the strength of His hand. 
And that's why he did this a lot to Pharaoh, to harden his heart, to go through the plagues, was that he could make sure that for years and generations and even centuries to come, the nation of Israel would look back to those things and say there's no doubt, there's no discussion. God did this by the strength of His hand. Very important. God is making a mark here. God is making a point of remembrance. God is putting a play, uh, something in place that will be remembered that here we are 4,000 years later or so, and we're still talking about it. Why? Because it was by the strength of His hand. Sometimes we need to rest in God having His way in our lives. We may not understand it, but you can rest assured that He's accomplishing it by the strength of His hand. He will get glory out of it. We get to verse number 3, the end of verse number 3. He says, and brought you out from this place. He says, there shall be no leavened bread eaten. And, of course, the leaven here signifies impurity and, and things that would be uh, defiling. Uh, so he, he gives them a, a feast of seven days of unleavened bread. In verse number 4, this day uh, came ye out in the month uh, uh, a bid. Abib, and it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which ye swear unto thy fathers to give thee a land flowing with milk and honey, that thou shalt <coughs> keep this service in this month. Seven days thou shalt eat unleavened bread, and in the seventh day shall be a, what's the next word here? Feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and there shall no leaven be seen with thee, neither shall there be any uh, shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters. Boy, I love this. I love it when the Old Testament shows pictures of things, don't you? Shadows of things. The idea of leaven here, and, and the Bible talks about this even when Jesus um, was uh, uh, teaching in the New Testament. He said, a little leaven, leaven at the whole lump. And he's talking about the sin of the Pharisees and how you let a little bit creep in, and it begins to defile the whole thing. And the idea that leaven is to be kept out. And so this was a picture, this was a, a period of time where the children of Israel, because again, God has told them to sanctify themselves. This was a period of living with purity. The Passover is taking place and they were to live with purity. But I want you to notice something because sometimes we get in our minds that uh, standards, that God's moral law is something that is... Difficult for us, it's kind of, it, it kind of rains on our parade, our, our parade of the flesh wanting to have fun and do its own thing and have its own way, that God would dictate that you're supposed to live with purity and with holiness and with righteousness and godliness. And it talks about this, but isn't it interesting that God makes this week of, of, of purity for the nation of Israel, their minds are set on purity. Isn't it amazing that God turns it into a feast? that there is supposed to be joy found in living a pure life. And can I tell you this? When we find ourselves in the very center of God's will, it's the most joyful place in the Christian life. You know the times that have been the hardest for me in my life have been the times that I, as, as Paul worded it, I kicked against the pricks. Those have been the most miserable times of my Christian life. The times that I, 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 I did not do what I knew God wanted me to do. The times that I allowed things into my life that I knew should not have been there. As I grew cold to the Lord and to the things of the Lord, as my prayer life began to, to, to get uh, stagnant, as the time that I would read my Bible became infrequent, 
I would get so miserable. I love this. That God takes what is intended to be a picture of purity in the life and a reminder to them to lay aside all these things and to focus their minds for seven days leading up to the Passover on purity. And He says, I want it to be a feast. I want it to be something y'all enjoy. What a thought. We get down to verse number 8. The Bible says, And thou shalt show thy son. I, I like this word, show. Not just teach, although we find in Deuteronomy that we're to teach our children. But beyond teaching, we're to show them. Somebody said years ago, it was a catchy little phrase, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. What they were saying by that is, your life and how you live it is going to speak far louder than your words and what you say. I don't know how many times I have found myself holding to some things outwardly but not practicing them inwardly. I think the truth be told, as we go around the room, we could all say that's been a battle. There's things that we've had in our lives where I have outwardly expressed my my conviction and my belief of it, but then inwardly didn't practice it. We all battle it, don't we? By the way, from the pastor down, your pastor's no different. The battle of the flesh is the same in every man, every woman. What God is getting at here is He says this. He says, Thou shalt show thy son in that day. Don't, don't just teach him outwardly. And by the way, we're going to see that a little bit later in this chapter, what happens. Don't just teach him outwardly. But teach them in the heart. We talk about our love for God. Is it an outward expression? Or is our heart overwhelmed with it? We talk about our faithfulness and our service to God. Is it an outward expression? Or is it an inward passion and love? Notice he says in verse 8, And thou shalt show thy son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. There's supposed to be purity there. And verse number 9, And it shall be for a sign upon thee, upon thine hand, notice this, and for a memorial between thine eyes, that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth, for with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. I think verse number 9 is a key, key, key verse here in this chapter. Shortly after this time, when God finally enacted... By the way, the things He's telling them to do in chapter 13, He tells them in verse number 5 that these are the things they're to do when they come into the land of the Canaanites. So they're not, not all of these things in chapter 13 are enacted immediately. Some of the things about redemption He doesn't even deal with until we get to the book of Numbers and He talks about uh, how to redeem the firstborn and that sort of a thing. So not everything is, is put into practice the day that He teaches this. But a lot of it is. We get to verse number 9, and, and what, what ends up happening is because of what God said here in verse 9, it shall be for a sign upon the, uh, unto thee upon thine hand and for a memorial between thine eyes that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth. This became a practice. They had something that was called phylacteries. That's a big word. And they, what they would do literally is they would take small boxes and they would write a little scroll of Scripture and tuck it inside that little that little container, 
and they would strap it to their left wrist or to their forehead. And they would walk around. Even in the time of Christ, they were still doing this because the Lord even gets on to them and says, y'all have missed it completely. What God is teaching here in verse number 9 is not saying, I want you to literally take and plant this thing on, on your forehead. We'd look awful silly today if we took the Bible and stuck it up here and walked around with it on our head all day. What he's dealing with is that it is always before them. It's always in their mind. It's always in their focus. They can't do anything. They can't think anything without coming back to this idea that God had delivered them from Egypt. By the way, in our Christian life, I get so tired of seeing Christians that are not excited about their salvation. We go through our life forgetting that we've been saved. We've been delivered from the old man. We go through our life, and and we're thankful on Sunday when we come to church and we sing the songs, but when we go to work on Monday, we don't give hardly any thought to the fact, boy, I'm saved today. I got out of bed this morning. I'm saved today. You get out of bed tomorrow morning. Boy, I'm saved today. God has saved me. He's saying, I want you to keep them. Everything you do with your hands... Everything that you think with your mind, always keep in mind that you've been bought with the price. You've been delivered by God. The nation of Israel took it and they said, uh, literally, we're going to take and write passages and stick them on our foreheads. We're going to stick them on our hands. You say, Brother Greg, how do you know it's not literal? Because of what verse number 9 says. Look at what it says. And it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand and for a memorial between thine eyes, that the Lord's law may be in thy, what's the next word? Mouth. Seems I remember reading in the book of Proverbs a verse that says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Where are these, where are these laws of God? Where are these memorials supposed to be? In our hearts. In our hearts. Three things make up every single one of us. What we know, what we do, and what we are. And sad to say, a lot of times in our churches, we we focus our preaching on knowing and doing. And rarely do we ever deal with what we are inwardly. God's not saying for you to take Scripture verses or a black Sharpie marker and write verses on your forehead or on your hand. What God is saying is to the nation of Israel, and I believe He teaches this again even in the New Testament to you and I, that we are to live every day in remembrance that we have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. That there's not a thing that happens in our life that the underlying motivating force driving us in it is the fact that I am redeemed. I am saved, saved, saved. I get up in the morning. I'm going to live today in such a way that I am sanctified to God because I am saved. I've been redeemed by His blood. I'm going, to, I'm going to choose the things I say based on the fact that I am wanting to please Him and sanctify myself to Him. Not because I've written it on my forehead or I've written it on my hand, 
but that I have engraved it on my heart. That it is ever before me. I cannot do anything and I cannot think anything without rejoicing in the fact that I have been bought with a price. He tells the nation of Israel, I have delivered you from Egypt. I have done so with the strength of my hand. Don't ever forget. I want it right here. And I want it right here. What he's saying most importantly is, I want it right here. It needs to come from your mouth. It needs to be spoken of. You need to teach your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. Oh, that we would learn these things. Well, we didn't make it through chapter 13, but we'll pick up. Isn't it good? You like, you, I love these. I love studying this stuff. And, uh, boy, you learn so much, don't you? God gives us beautiful pictures in the Old Testament of New Testament principles and uh, how we ought to live our lives. And so don't miss next week. We'll finish up chapter 13 next week and move on. Uh, and then hold on to your seats. It gets even more excitinger. All right? As if the Word of God's not exciting enough, it gets... It's exciting, er, er. Okay? All right, let's, let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word. What a joy it is to our hearts. Lord, we thank you so much. For allowing us to be your children. For allowing us to have in our hands your word. So that our hearts can know what your will is so that we can know how better to love you and to show our love for you, to sanctify ourselves to you. And so, Father, help us to have the wisdom of your Holy Spirit, the enlightening, illuminating in our hearts of your Word. We can rightly divide it. We can rightly understand it. And, Father, most importantly, that we will have a passion and a love and a desire to live it. Dismiss us with your blessings. Bless the service to follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.